Well, all year, we're going through the Gospel according to John in a series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And today we get to finish uh, chapter 7 of John's Gospel. So if you'd like to start turning to John chapter 7 in your Bible or Bible app, that would be great. But we're considering today what it means for Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah. Now, I think a lot of people think that Christ is probably Jesus' last name, like it was Mary and Joseph Christ and then Jesus Christ, you know, something like that. And I, I, seriously, I wonder how old I was, probably later than I want to uh, be, admit, of when I realized that this actually was a title for Jesus and not just his last name. Christ is a title. It's a title which means the anointed one or maybe in more modern language, the chosen one. So Greek, uh, Christ is the translation of the anointed one in the Greek, and Messiah is the translation in Hebrew. And so you might, depending on your Bible translation in this text, you might see Christ or Messiah. It means the same thing. Both mean anointed one or chosen one. But anointed or chosen to do what exactly? Well, that's the big point of this passage. Uh, just who was Jesus and what was his mission? Why was he sent from heaven? And what did he come to accomplish? Have you ever thought about that in your life? What is Jesus trying to accomplish in your life today? What is Jesus trying to do? Now, for me personally, I've definitely had times, difficult times, of anger or pain or fear where I've cried out to the Lord in prayer and, and I was hoping to get some answer as to what God was doing, what, Lord, is happening in my life. Jesus, where are you and what are you doing here? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever prayed those prayers? Well, it was no different in Jesus' day because people then were divided over who he was and what he was supposed to accomplish as the Messiah. And yet Jesus knew who he was and, and he knew what he had come to do as the Messiah. And as the Messiah, the anointed one, then he extends an open invitation to all people, even today. So if you have a Bible or an app, please take it and open it to John chapter 7. We're starting with verse 25. We'll put the scripture on the screens for you as well. Verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Okay, let's pause here and provide a little context. So, last week we saw Jesus, the great teacher... Uh, who came to the festival of tabernacles in Jerusalem and was teaching in the temple courts. And his teaching was amazing because of its authority and its power. It was, it was helpful and encouraging, but it also at times offered a correction or even a rebuke. It was nothing like they had heard before. 
They were baffled because Jesus, they knew, hadn't been formally trained either. Where did, does this man get his authority and his ability to speak like this? They just didn't really understand. Well, here, we're still in the temple courts. And we have this mix of a crowd there for the festival of the tabernacles. And uh, we have the crowd from all over the region, from maybe perhaps from others from Galilee as well, who had traveled to Jerusalem to be at the festival. And we also have the religious leadership who would be based at the temple in Jerusalem, who we know are plotting against Jesus. Now, the crowd knows that the leaders aren't a fan of Jesus, but it appears from this that they, they even know that the leadership was trying to kill Jesus. So they're confused as to why the leaders seem to be allowing him to teach publicly here. Had they changed their minds about Jesus? Had, did they now think that he was really the Messiah? These were the questions swirling around this crowd on this day. But they're not sure because John says that they thought that when the Messiah came, no one would know where he was from. Now, why did they think that? Well, probably because of an Old Testament passage like Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at that together. Daniel the prophet, hundreds of years before this time, wrote this. He had a vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, in this passage, notice that this one, like the Son of Man, this, this human being that comes into the presence of God and is given an everlasting kingdom, there's no mention of, of his family, there's no mention of his city, there's no mention of his tribe in Israel, of where he comes from. There's nothing in, these, in the ancient people's view to help identify the origin of this man whom God would appoint to be the king of a kingdom, his kingdom, and a kingdom that would last forever. But at least some people in the crowd of, in Jerusalem think they know where Jesus is from. We know he's from, he, he's from Nazareth, right? We know we've met his, his family. Now, as we'll be reminded in a short time from now in Christmas, at Christmas time, that Jesus, he indeed grew up in the town of Nazareth in the nor northern region of Galilee, but he actually was born in Bethlehem in Judea because of a Roman census that required everyone to go back to their ancestral homes. So the people knew that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. They just didn't know he was actually born in Bethlehem. So John reveals this irony that some people thought they knew more about Jesus than they really did, and thus their confusion. Well, how would he respond? Look at verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple court, so same, same place, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am only with you. I am with you only for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. Okay, so (laughs) this is kind of a chaotic scene. Right? It's a busy temple court full of many people, probably hundreds if not thousands of people crushed together, uh, some of whom want to seize Jesus, says John. And it's not clear if they want to seize him to stop him from continuing to claim that he was the one sent from the Father in heaven or if they want to seize him and make, them, make him their king. Or maybe a little both, perhaps. But there are some in the crowd who believe in Jesus, John says, having been convinced by the signs, the miraculous signs that he has done. Now, we've already seen five of these signs in, five of the seven in John's gospel, um, not including the resurrection, which of course is the most important sign. But they say, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Like, like this has to be him, right? You know, when you're watching a fireworks display, they don't have to signal that it's the finale. You just kind of all go, oh, like it's just more than everything that came before. Well, that's how some people felt about Jesus. Like, this has to be him, Right? This is similar to what the Samaritan woman had said all the way back in chapter 4 to the other people of her community after she talked with Jesus. She said, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the religious leaders heard people talking like this, they know that they need to act quickly and put an end to this kind of talk. This is exactly what they're afraid of with someone like Jesus. They don't accept Jesus. They don't believe in him. So the last thing they wanted is for people to recognize him and put him on some kind of pedestal as the Messiah or the king who certainly would upset their power, their authority, their political influence. So they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. Well, in the meantime, Jesus starts to talk about his departure. His hour, the hour of his suffering and death on the cross had not yet come, but it was coming. And Jesus says, there will come a time when you'll look for me, but you won't be able to find me. Now the people struggle to understand what he means by this, which is understandable because only after his death on the cross for the sins of the world did they realize, the disciples realized that what he was referring to here was his death and the grave. But at this point, people don't understand. No one anticipated a dying Messiah. So there's belief. There's also unbelief. There's faith. 
And there's rejection of Jesus in the hardness of their hearts. There are people who are ready to follow Jesus and, and appoint him as the Christ, the Messiah, their king even. And yet there are people there trying to arrest him or even kill him. There are people who want to seize Jesus for all of the reasons. Now, if I were Jesus, I'd be pretty frustrated by all this chaos. I'm sure it would be tempting to use your divine power and authority to whack the doubters and the critics and certainly your enemies, right? But that's not Jesus. Look and see what he does with verse 37. On the last and the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others, says, still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob who knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will not find that a prophet comes out of Galilee. This is God's word. Okay, we end with a little bit of attitude from the Pharisees, right? Well, and Nicodemus, if you notice, has come back into the story once again from chapter 3, uh, there at the end of this passage. Now, Nicodemus seems to try and diffuse what the Pharisees want to do and encourage them to obey the law and give Jesus due process. Let's hear him out. Let him make a defense of himself before we render judgment. But in response to all the swirling, divisive chaos around Jesus, on the last and the greatest day of the festival, which would have been the eighth day, Jesus stands up and shouts out this invitation to all people, to the crowd, to the Pharisees, to the temple guards, to the faithful, to the doubters, to everyone great and small, rich and poor. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, will find that rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now John helps us out by telling us the meaning of the metaphor of the water, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
which would happen on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus. But, but for the Jewish people, this, this offer, this invitation to receive living water would have, should have, instantly made them think of many famous passages from the Hebrew Bible, such as the story of the Exodus, where God made water flow from the rock in the desert wilderness to, to save and to sustain his people. Or uh, you might think of the many promises of God related to water through the prophets, including Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel. If we had another hour, we could do a deep Old Testament dive and watch the, the, the flow of the picture of water run throughout the Bible. Just one of those passages is Isaiah 44, verse 3, where God says that in, in, that, in one future day, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Now, Jesus stands up and loudly proclaims for the world to hear that what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah and other prophets what God had promised in the past would be fulfilled by him. It's all happening now, in other words. And anyone who comes to me and believes in me, puts their faith in Jesus, will have these streams of living water. Water, as we've already seen in John's gospel, that will well up to eternal life because that water is the very power and the personal presence of God who is the Holy Spirit. Now, this is huge. This is a turning point of all time. In fact, I think we need to zoom out a little bit and better understand the context to truly appreciate the power of this statement. Because it was at this final day of the Festival of the Tabernacles. It wasn't like a random Thursday. Okay, this is a, this, Jesus understands timing, right? And he makes this pronouncement the eighth day of the feast. So according to Leviticus chapter 28, the festival of tabernacles, which is also sometimes called, called the Feast of Booths, was to be celebrated every year after harvest time. Now every year, whether you are a farmer or not, whenever you receive some kind of harvest, it should make you thankful, right? We should respond to God and go, Lord, thank you so much for this incredible blessing that you've brought into our lives. And so the people were to take a week off of work and, and live in temporary tents, which is what tabernacle means, or shelters or booths, in order to remember when the Lord led his people through the wilderness after freeing them from captivity in Egypt. There's no bigger blessing than the freedom that God provides his people by his grace. So for seven days every year, they were to bring palm branches and food offerings and water and wine and rejoice before the Lord. According to the commentator Don Carson, quote, on the seven days of the feast, a golden flagon, I think that's some kind of carafe, was filled with water from the pool of Siloam and was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. The water was offered to God at the time of the morning sacrifice. And these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles were related in Jewish thought both to the Lord's provision of water in the desert and to the Lord's pouring out of the Spirit in the last days. 
So pouring at the Feast of Tabernacles refers symbolically to the messianic age, the age of the Messiah, in which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. This is what the people were celebrating. And so it was on the eighth day during the final sacred assembly of the people at the temple in Jerusalem, this was where Jesus stood up and said and proclaimed in a loud voice so that all could hear, it's me. I am the one God promised to send. This whole festival of tabernacles that, that you've been celebrating as a people for at least 1,200 years by this time, all of that was pointing to me and what I will do. Now this was enough for some. He is the Messiah, they say. But others are still confused, so they're divided. The crowd is divided. The Pharisees and the temple guards are divided. Nicodemus and the rest of the Jewish ruling council are divided. Now, of course, this is what we'll continue to see in John's gospel in the weeks ahead. Really, I see this central section of John's gospel as the battle to understand and believe in who Jesus is and what he came to do. But if Jesus was and is the Christ... If he was and is the Messiah, the chosen one sent by God, the Father in heaven, then what does that really mean for us today? Other than just an interesting fact in the history of the Jewish people, right? What is this teaching? Uh, how does this apply to our lives today? Well, for our remaining time, I'd like to leave you with two things. One, caution, and one, hopefully, encouragement. So first, the caution. Accepting Jesus as the Messiah. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, be careful. Be careful that you know for sure what he came to do. You see, to be anointed or chosen by God always came with specific God-given tasks. No one was anointed for no reason. Prophets were anointed to prophesy. Priests were anointed in order to carry out the priestly responsibilities given by God to his people. Kings were anointed to reign and rule. So in the same way, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, was anointed for a purpose. And confusion about the purpose of Jesus has divided people both then and now. In that day, some of the people wanted to seize Jesus and make him their king, but for political purposes only. Remember that at this time, Israel was part of the Roman Empire. Pe many people at that time thought that the purpose of the Messiah would be to lead a rebellion against Rome and set their people free. Restore to their nation the the former glory. But as big as that would have seemed to the people at, at the time, it's actually too small of a vision of what God was doing. 
God was doing so much more than providing mere political freedom or power to his people in this broken world. He was dealing with the brokenness of the world. You see, Jesus wasn't chosen simply to conquer the Romans. He was chosen. He was anointed. He was sent from heaven in order to conquer Satan and provide freedom from sin and death itself. So in the same way, we must be careful. We must be cautious that we do not shrink the purpose of Jesus in our own hearts, in our own minds and imaginations, and in our own lives. You see, lots of people start following Jesus. They start considering Christianity because they think that maybe Jesus will help them with something in their lives. Maybe to have a better marriage or a better family or a better life. But those are two small purposes for Jesus. That shrinks down the vision of what the Messiah came to do. So if you believe in him, Jesus won't just make your life slightly better, like a little upgrade to you in your life. If you believe in him, as we've seen throughout John's gospel, he will take you from death to life. You'll be born again. The Holy Spirit will come into your heart and life and will change you, will transform you in every way. No part of your life will remain untouched. So be careful that you don't shrink the purpose of God in Christ in your life. Second, the encouragement. Okay, you've been warned. Now I want to encourage you, okay? We must careful, carefully think through. We must be careful not to underestimate the purpose and work of Jesus the Messiah, but also we must remember what he did on the last and the greatest day of that festival. During the sacred assembly, he stood up and cried out in a loud voice, you're all condemned. He could have. But instead, he stood up and cried out in a loud voice, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as, scriptures, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So my encouragement to you today is this. Friends, this offer is open to all people. Whether you've always had a clear view of the person and the work of Jesus or not, whether you've always followed his way, like from when the time you were a little kid to today or not, whether you're just considering to starting to follow the way of Jesus today, whether things are going relatively well for you or in, as I mentioned earlier, times of anger or times of pain and struggle and fear, when you can't understand what God is doing, you cannot see the purpose of Jesus in your life at this time. No matter who you are, let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who needs the life and the light and the love of God and his kingdom and his power and his glory to come into your life through Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, let us turn to him. Let us go to him. Let us run to him. For he is the fount. He's the source. He's the headwaters every good and perfect thing that will flow into your life. For he is the promised one, born in Bethlehem, son of David, who is the king of the kingdom of God. And only he provides the springs of living water 
which well up to life eternal. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your good plans that you revealed to us in the fullness of time, which center on the person and work of your son Jesus, whom you anointed to be our Savior and to be our Lord, and to gain victory over Satan and sin and death and hell forever. And Father, I pray that we would, as we, as we turn to Jesus, and maybe as we wrestle with the purposes of Jesus in our lives today, Father, I pray that you would do as you have promised to do and pour out the, the wellspring of your Holy Spirit into our lives, into our hearts. Even now, Lord, fill us with your Spirit so that we might not only better understand who you are and your purposes, what you are doing in our lives today, but that we might feel your loving presence walking with us through this broken world day in and day out. And slowly, Lord, over time, we trust that you will indeed shape us and transform us in every way into the likeness of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, our Messiah, amen.